to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So that screw came into my cell and sexually abused me more than once. Um, he was bigger than me. Um, and there, there wasn't much I could do because I was only so young and small compared to him. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. As a child, Jacob's life was on the wrong track. Following in his father's footsteps, he joined a bikey gang and found himself in trouble with the law all before turning 18. After being sexually abused in custody, he has made it his life's mission to find justice for survivors of institutional abuse. Content warning, if you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Jacob, welcome to The Deep. Thanks for having us, Zoe. Really appreciate it. Tell me about what your life was like as a little boy. Yeah, so as a little boy, I grew up I moved around a lot now, actually, to be honest. Um, my mum and dad split up when I was pretty young. Uh, I can't remember exactly how old, but I was only like, um, you know, under three. I was, only, I was only pretty young. So, yeah, they were living in a small country town called Inverell when they broke up. And me and mum moved away to, I believe, a place called Sydney. Um, and then we sort of kept moving um, up towards Newcastle, so we're at the Central Coast, a um, couple of places on the Central Coast. Um, There's a lot of different men around in my life when I was younger. There was a lot of um, drinking, um, some domestic violence. Um, my father used to have me for school holidays, every school holiday, so I'd go up and um, visit him on the holidays. And um, I'd just come back to mum during the school um, period. Um, we eventually moved to Newcastle. Um, when we lived in Newcastle, um, we are living in housing commission there. There was a place called, I don't know, it's a funny name, they called it the zoo just because I suppose there were so many different sort of sorts of characters in there. Um, mm. So, yeah, we we were there for, for a while. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, there was a lot of drinking, domestic violence and things like that. So, yeah, it was just me and my little sis. And I was playing footy down there, go okay, for Newcastle Knights. Um, I remember... I think it was 2001 was the last time we won a grand final. And um, I was living in house commission at the time and Newcastle Knights won that, that grand final. The whole street went up, which was pretty cool when you're a young kid. I mm-hmm. first started playing footy down there, so I was really into sports. Um, I'd come up and visit my dad in the holidays. Me and my little sister were down there. And, um, yeah, we eventually ended up moving up towards the Gold Coast, a place called Tweed Heads. Just because mm-hmm. I was starting to get in a bit of trouble down there and mum wanted me to sort of get away from that. Yeah. So that brought me up to about 11 or 12. Yeah. When did you start? When was your first idea that crime was around and that you could potentially be witnessing things that weren't appropriate? 
Uh, well, so my father was taken away from me to serve a 16 and a half year prison sentence. Um, so when I was 10 years old, I remember I was living at the same um, house in the housing commission where the Newcastle Knights won the grand final. And I remember me and mum watching telly and I remember a news article coming on and they said something along the lines of Bikey has been arrested. Um, and it was a photo of my dad and a photo of videos. I, know, I can't remember what it was back then, but it was a while ago. And um, yeah, so I just remember going into my room. I was just laying in my bed crying. I was really upset, you know, because my dad had just been taken away. I didn't know what to do. I had an idea of what I wanted to do. There's a, the, that town where I was living, I was a local police station. I wanted to go down there and blow it up. Obviously, I was just a young kid and I would never do that. Mm. But I was just really angry, hurt, upset, crying. My mum came into the room and she was just telling me everything's going to be okay. So, yeah, from that age of 10 years old, I was having jail phone calls. I was watching my dad go through a court case, which took years. Um, you know, I was having jail visits. Did you know that he was a bikey? Yeah. Yeah. How did you know? Like, what did that mean to you as a child? Um, he, he used to hide things from me a lot. Um, so I didn't really know what was going on. Um, all I knew that was... Well, you know, when he got locked up, he was basically got smoked for drug manufacturing and also for a lot of guns. Um, but yeah, he used to hide it from me very well. And it was always a lot of fun. You know, I grew up in housing commission and not that my mum, not that, not that we were like extremely poor, like my mum done whatever she could to put food on the table. I'm very blessed to, you know, have her in my life because she's a very strong woman. And um, yeah, but you know, when you go up to your dad's at school holidays, you're having fun, there's lots of money. He had a nice house. We're going to SeaWorld, Movie World, Dream World, buying me bikes and stuff like that. But I didn't really understand the concept. I, I remember seeing a couple of things now that I look back and because, you know, I was I ended up joining the same bikey gang that he was in, um, you know, I could I know what it is now because it makes sense. Got it. I want to ask you then, he gets taken away. You have 16 years worth of jail visits, jail phone calls, not having your dad around, you're angry. These are in the years that you're developing into a man. Did you want to follow his footsteps to connect yourself to him? What was your reason for for joining the same gang? Yeah, definitely. So – when my father wasn't around, you know, I didn't have many sort of good mentors around, you know, helping me to short sort of point me in the right direction. I felt a bit lost, alone, very scared growing up at some points. Um, so I was looking for that brotherhood or, you know, them men around me to show me the right way or what I thought mm. was the right way anyway, because... Um, back then I didn't, yeah, I didn't have anyone there to show me what was the right way or be taught what's the right, what's sort of right and wrong. I mean, my mum did teach me, but, um, I wasn't really listening. Um, and you know, mm. for me, it was, it was a lot of fun being around, um, the bikey gang at the, at that time. And when I was growing up, like I was, I, I idolized my dad and, um, yeah, I wanted to be like a bikey gangster or whatever that was in my head when when I was a young kid, I was very fascinated by it, um, strangely enough, because, you know, growing up, visiting them places, it was never fun. Um, and then myself going in as well. So I remember just growing up and being around it and going on them jail visits, having the screws, treating my family like shit, treating me like shit, running sniffer dogs over our crutches, taking people into the strip room, uh, sorry, into the rooms before, um, before visits and strip searching them. But yeah, mm. I end up becoming a, a high ranking member of the of, of that bikey gang. And mm. yeah, it was a lot of fun. Like I was only a young kid. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? Like, I don't know the rules of the bikey gangs, right? But like, is it like the movies where you, 
you know, deal drugs and there's lots of strippers and prostitutes and you like shoot people. Like what's the day-to-day running when you're high ranking in a bike gang? And will we get killed for talking about this? (laughs) Hopefully we don't. (laughs) No, I've already, I've been to jail for some of my crimes um, that I've committed. Um, Some of them crimes are pretty bad. I, I probably don't want to throw myself under the bus, but yeah, there was a lot of times, you know, when we used to hurt people, um, when I used to hurt people, take things off people, me personally, I won't talk for anybody else. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun as in every single Friday, um, we had our own sort of clubhouse, our own spot. Um, we would go there and inside of the clubhouse, it would be like a bar. Um, there would be like pool table, stripper pole. Um, have like upstairs, you go upstairs. Every clubhouse is different, but this is the one that I nommed up to and was become a high-ranking member of. So upstairs, you go up there and it's just like a room, um, closed-off room. You could have, um, you know, meetings there or take drugs there or uh, be with girls there. There was lots of girls around, so that was very attractive for me when I was a young young man. Um, you know, there was, there was prostitutes, there was strippers, um, there was all that sort of stuff that you probably would say on the movies. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it was pretty fun when I was a young kid because it was just me and my mates and we got to do whatever we wanted. There was drinks. You could drink all weekend. The, the clubs don't close at the clubhouse. It's sort of like the last man standing, which could be Monday, Friday to Monday morning, um, which, yeah, it was pretty fun. I, I enjoyed it a lot. How old were you? When I first started hanging around the club, when I, actually, when I first, because I was in a... I was in sort of like a street, a street sort of gang street crew before the bikies, but we were sort of hanging around there from about 18, 19. I maybe nommed up when mm-hmm. I was maybe just over 20. What is a nommed up? Uh, a nom is like when you first sort of join a crew, like a bikie gang, um, you'll be like, you'll be like what they call the hang around. So they'll just be like, you might get invited to a party. Um, they might ask you to help out with things, you know, cook a barbecue or I don't know, if you're going on a run, you might drive one of the cars. Um, but a nom is like somebody who's like a bit more than a hang around. So they'll, they'll be behind the bar serving drinks. If one of the members asks the nom to do something, you basically have to do whatever they say. Um, and that could be like, go and have sex with that girl. That could be like, um, go and have a fight with that guy or, you know, go and, do whatever, 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 you, whatever they say, you, you basically just got to do it. I mean, there's like a period, so you've got to be like a nominee for a period of time and then you become a member. Okay. So it's like an initiation. Yeah. You could say that. Okay. Yep. Cause I know we're going to talk about jail in a minute, but, um, did you feel violated having to do the things they told you to do like if you had to have sex with someone you maybe didn't want to or you had to go bash someone you didn't want to or are you just in it like I don't care I just want to be in this there wasn't many things that I I done that I regretted um there was definitely a couple of things that I regretted and I still do regret them to this day um I enjoyed um being getting in fights I enjoy punching people in the head, enjoy getting punched. Um, you know, when I left that life behind, it was very hard because I still enjoyed it, but I started boxing. Um, mm. But yeah, like back then, like I loved it. I was a young kid. I used to play footy when I was younger. Um, that sort of stuff was pretty fun for me. But yeah, there was definitely a couple of things where I was like, it goes against my morals and what I believe in. Yeah. Can you tell us what those things are that you regret, still regret? Um, nah, because... I don't think like it would get me in trouble, but I just don't like to say it because I'm embarrassed and ashamed of what I've done. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about jail. What did you get caught doing and what were your crimes and how long were you away? My first crime was when I believe I was 16 or 17. It was in Sydney. Uh, I, think, I think it was like assault police or resist arrest or both. Um, but yeah, I was on bail for that one. Um, and I lived in Queensland at that time in a place called Coolangatta, which is right near um, Coolangatta Airport. So 
right near Coolangatta Airport is the beach. So you have one service road that runs along the beach, and then you have the Gold Coast Highway, which is like two lanes either side, and then you have the next service road over, which is Coolangatta Road. And I lived on Coolangatta Road. Um, and yeah, basically, so I was on bail for the charges in New South Wales, and my friends went to a party in Queensland, and they got bashed, and so we went and retaliated, and I, I can't remember if, if it was even the right people, or, or it wasn't, or we thought it was the right people, but basically we bashed everyone in the house, um, including the parents, um, <gasps> parent, I don't think the mother was bashed, I think, I, I think the father was. The, the whole house was smashed up and it was pretty ugly, pretty ugly. And I was only 17 at that time. And so, yeah, I think me and my co-defendant, um, we both were put on bail and my bail conditions were curfew and I wasn't allowed. So that basically what that means is, so you might have to stay inside from 9am until 6pm and I was to reside at my mother's address, which is on Coolangatta Road, which is where I grew up. Um, and my mum was pretty cool then like she used to let my friends come over which was great so it wasn't so bad but I was only two days into my curfew um and yeah I went and robbed somebody so I walked across the road from my house so I lived on the Coolangatta Road that service road walked across the highway to the next service road which is the beachfront and I and I robbed somebody there um so I committed a robbery of violence and so yeah I walked straight back across the road to Coolangatta Road which is basically, you could see it, you could see. So these people were just like, um, called the police, told the police what had happened. The police come to my house. They walked down the driveway and I used to have parties in my shed. And they knocked on the door and they said, hey, did you just rob somebody? I said, no. They said, can you come out the front? You're under arrest. And um, I was like, I haven't done anything. I didn't do anything. I was off my head. Um, I think it was one of the first couple of times I'd taken drugs. Um, maybe I was definitely pissed um, and they checked my pocket and um, I had the guy's wallet in it and they pulled out the wallet and it had $10 in it um, so you know wasn't really worth it so yeah no. end up in Southport Watch House which is pretty shit and yeah yeah I just remember um, I'll never forget that smell of the Watch House so Basically, I woke up in the watch house. I can't remember like like what sort of state I was in, but I was I was sort of like, oh, what the fuck happened last night? Where am I? And um, yeah, I was in um, Southport Watch House, seventeen years old, um, on my way to jail. And that smell of the watch house. Anybody who's ever been to any watch house, because I've been to a lot of watch houses, and they all st- they all smell very similar. It's like a it's like a hospital sort of just that real bad strong i could only describe it as a hospital but it's worse than a hospital the jail cells are putrid um inside of southport watch house so there's like this one little room and then there's about four little sort of cells hanging off it inside of the cells you'll share the room and so there's guys basically coming in off the street who might be homeless guys who are coming in from the jails on remand to get sentenced guys who have just been sentenced coming in off the streets but mostly it's guys who are just pissed coming from surface paradise, carrying on, smashing up the rooms or just pissing in the rooms or homeless guys coming through, having had a shower in a couple of weeks. So there's like blood, piss, pubes, all this disgusting stuff all through the cells. Um, so yeah, the watch house is definitely the most disgusting part of going to jail. Mm-hmm. So from there, I went to Brisbane Boys Yard um, at that time. I was 17 years old. So once you turn 18, you go to the men's prison. Or if you're under 17, you go to like uh, Brisbane Youth Detention Centre. But I don't believe they have this set up anymore. I think it's just like whatever it is from like 13 to 17, then to jail. But back then it was say 13 to 17. Um, you know, you're in that sort of pre boys yard and then now it's boys yard and then jail. So I don't know, it was a bit of a weird setup. But I don't think they have the boys' yard anymore. But, yeah, I got put into the boys' yard. and So everyone was 17 there. Um, you know, some people had family members who were in jail, like myself. Um, a couple of the other boys had brothers or even co-defendants who, you know, they done the crime done the crime with. 
Um, so when I was there, I was just sort of finding my feet. I didn't really know anyone. Um, a couple of the boys that I turned 18 with, they went to men's prison as well. But yeah, when I was there, a screw come into myself. When I say a screw, I mean um, a corrections officer. So they're like mm. the guys and ladies who look after um, prisoners or boyard fellas or juvies or, um, but yeah. So that screw come into my cell and sexually abused me more than once. Um, he was bigger than me um, and there, there wasn't much I could do because I was only so young and small compared to him. Wow. Yeah, so. Wow. It was hard. Yeah. How long did that last? It only happened a few times. Um, it, it only happened. That's not what I can say. Because um, I was terrible, but yeah, it wasn't like a it wasn't like an every single day thing. Uh, it only happened a few times. So I suppose I was luckier than other people through some of the work that I do um, at about time for justice. We help survivors of institutional child abuse um, to seek justice, start healing, um, and possible compensation every single day. Um, myself and my business partner who's my father, are both survivors. But, yeah, so the stories that we hear each and every single day, some of these cases of abuse are, like, ongoing. They're, like, every single day for years and years on end. So it's not, not I'm not saying that, that any abuse is worse than others or, you know, it's all bad. But, yeah, so it happened to me a few times in there, which is shit. Um, I turned 18 in prison. This must seem very obvious, but how does it happen? Are you sharing a cell? How does this person come in? Where do his colleagues think he is? Does he shut the door? Does everybody know it's happening? Do the other boys know it's happening? I'm assuming other boys are being targeted. How does it go down? How? Yeah, so the screws come in... um so basically, all like when you're in the cells, you're in there by yourself. When I was a juvie, when you're in the men's prison, I think at the moment they're doubled and tripled up. But me specifically, my situation was single cell. So you only have your own sort of little cell. You have your toilet, shower, table to sit on, and a TV, I believe. And at the top of the cell, I can't remember if we because we were 17, they had a camera up there, but they had like this little fishbowl little mirror so like when the screws walk past your cell there's a little um mirror or not a mirror a little just piece of glass so they can see in there um, so they can see if you're laying in your bed or if you're sitting on the toilet doing shit or pissing or in the shower they can look at that little circle mirror and look at you so they can just look in um so yeah i believe it was lockdown at the time and the guy come into my cell lockdown means basically everyone's locked in their cell um you know so everyone's just sort of it could be there's a big fire in the jail. It could be um, everyone's wrapped up for the day and then just going to bed and the screws basically just lock you down. And, yeah, you come into my cell during lockdown. Um, I don't know if there were any other guys um, that were abused by this perpetrator. There was There's definitely guys that were being abused in, in that institution and, and others all around Australia. Um, I don't know how all these pedophiles got away with all this for so long, but yeah. Ooh, okay. We don't have heaps of time left with you and I want to get to your work. You went in and out of prison. Is that right? Could you tell me about uh, in and out of prison, uh, dealing with the bikies, how you left the bikies, and then I want to get into your current work. Yeah, so 17 years old, just being abused inside of Brisbane Boys Yard. And it was my 18th birthday coming up. When there was a lot of other people around, you know, spending their 18th birthday with their loved ones, with their friends, family, going out to the pub or going out to a nightclub or going to strip club or going wherever they're going for their 18th birthday. My 18th birthday was spent packing up my cell, getting transferred from Brisbane Correctional Centre to Arthur Gorey Correctional Centre. So what that looked like was packed up myself, put, you put all your stuff in a sheet, like so you got like a big rack sack and sh- put it over your shoulder. You walk down with your toiletries and all that stuff and you get transferred from Brisbane Correctional, you get put into a bus, in the back of the bus, I'm 18 years old, just turned 18, 
get taken over to Athagori and I was shitting myself because of what just happened to me. I didn't know what the hell was going on, going to happen. But when I got there, they sort of give you, they check how your mental health is. Um, they just give you sort of like a once-over and just see how your medical is. Um, I think they do blood tests to see if you have like any blood transmitted diseases or like yeah any of that stuff. can't believe if that was a urine test. Um, but yeah, so... I remember getting my thongs, a packet of White Ox, because at that time, White Ox is like a jail smoke. Uh, it's like tobacco. And um, yeah, so I felt pretty cool then. I got my got my pluggers. They're called G'day Mates in Queensland Prison System. So on the bottom of the thong, it says G'day Mate. And um, so I got them, got a couple mm-hmm. of more toiletries, got my White Ox, and I started cruising down into the men's part of the prison. And as I said, I was scared. Um, so my father was serving a 16 and a half year prison sentence and he sent the word up to somebody who was also in the same crew as him and they sort of, they found me and, um, they got me into their yard. So I got pretty lucky there. They started training me up, um, started just showing me the ropes, what to say, what not to say. Um, so when you go from the boys yard to men's prison, it's, it's a whole different game. It's a lot, it's a lot different. Um, you know, it's just a a lot more serious like you have to be very careful what you say you can't ask lots of questions so when you first when i first walked into that unit i remember going holy fuck this is a lot different to the boys yard so behind me is what they call the fishbowl so the fishbowl is perspex glasses basically so they the screws can't get attacked spat on um if they want to mm-hmm. do anything they put it through like a little hole in the fishbowl so if I was standing with the fishbowl directly behind me to the right-hand side is a jail yard. Out in the jail yard, it's just like this big fenced-off area. Um, you have a jail phone. Um, you have um, chin-up bar, dip bar. To the left-hand side, you had the kitchen, a toilet, a laundry. Then you have... Um, so right on that level that I was speaking about was the landing but then you have an upstairs landing and a downstairs landing. And there was maybe, I think that yard was like a 50 man unit. Um, no air conditioners. You did have unlimited shower time there. Are you like living with 50 men and you all have to, yeah, like a, a little micro community and you all have, there's ranks and levels and respect and crews and this crew and you can't, you got to coexist with 50 men. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So I want to fast forward. How long are you in and out of jail? I only done one year in jail. Um, some people might think, you know, one year is not very long, but some people might think, fuck, one year, that's ages. Um, yeah, I only mm-hmm. went to jail twice with a total of about a year. Okay. So you got out and did you tell your dad about that sexual assault? No, I didn't tell him. Um, I, I didn't tell him at that time. No. And I don't believe I knew about his jet either. Okay. So you get out of jail. Do you want to go straight to the bikies or are you like, I want to retire? And also, I don't know if this is a myth because I'm not a bikie, but when you are in a bikie gang, can you just quit? I thought it's like ride or die, like they'll kill you if you quit. Yeah. So when I got out of jail, like I hadn't, <clears throat> I hadn't actually joined the bikies yet. Um, so that first little Uh, stint I hadn't joined yet. Yeah. So when I got out I just, that's when I got really heavily involved with gangs, like street gangs. Um, so a street gang might not be as sophisticated or not that a a body gang is is sophisticated, but it's just like a a different level to what a street gang is. It's very unorganized street gangs. Um, some anyway, so yeah, the one that I was in, um, we started hanging around, um, the club and then yeah i nommed up um and then i was very angry 
um, at that time, you know, and I, I was fucking up again. I was straight back on bail. I was back on probation. I was back on parole. Um, I was just hanging around these guys all the time and, um, yeah, I got locked up again. This second time I got 22 and a half hour day lockdowns for two and a half um, months. I was looking at 20 plus years in prison. I was made to wear pink every day. There was no TV in my cell. Um, we had two hours yard time per day. And when we first got locked up, um, we got put into a yard with seven other gang members from a different gang who the police knew that we had beef with on the outside. And, um, the other guy that I was with, me and him, we just went out back to back just to say, like, yeah, we're not going to sort of not go out because if our own gang found out, we would have got kicked out and, um, just what they would have called a weak cunt. So we would have been like a weak cunt. Um, and you know, inside of the prison, we also probably would have got bashed for being just not standing up for ourselves. But yeah, we, we got through that tough time. We didn't have a fight or anything. We just all sorted out, shook hands. The screws were trying to set us up. Um, wow. so that was a very hard time. That jail was very hard. So how long was that all up? That segregation was two and a half months, 22 and a half hour day lockdowns. Wild. Yeah. Wild, wild, wild. Okay. Yeah. I got out of there. Um, I got put back into the mainstream, um, out of the segregation. So I got out of there and, you know, I was straight back out. I was fucking up. I was back on bail, back on probation. This whole time also too, I was taking a lot of drugs and alcohol, um, hanging at the clubhouse. Um, but yeah, that second time, once I got out, um, before I got locked up under them charges where I was facing 20 years, they shut down all the clubhouses in Queensland. So like all that fun stuff when I was talking about bikies, girls, parties, you know, all that stuff was finished. We couldn't wear club colors. You couldn't wear like jewelry, gangs or gang stuff. Any insignia, you couldn't write around any colors. So colors is like you cut off. So yeah, got out and it was, it had all changed. Um, but I was still fucking up and. Dad was coming up for parole and um, he just served that 16 and a half year prison sentence and I sort of grew up my whole life doing that. And um, so his parole conditions were non-association. Non-association means you're not allowed to hang out with uh, any former or known gang members. And even though dad was my father, um, I still wouldn't be allowed to see him. And we had the idea to lie and parole said, um, you know, we, they thought of that and they said, worst case scenario is you'll put your dad back in jail. Best case scenario is um, you won't be allowed to see him. And I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I spent my whole life visiting prison systems, having that sort of gang lifestyle, growing up around. I was like, I just want to leave. And I told the, the gang that I was in at that time and um, they, they understood. And um, yeah, so dad got out and um, yeah, me and dad and our family sort of come back together. When did you tell somebody your story and when did your dad find out? And because that's a huge moment of vulnerability, like stepping into the truth. And then, I mean, it's really where you've ended up with your whole business. So can you tell me about that and then we can move in to your business? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I can't remember exactly how it started, but I knew that no, so, so this guy who um, helped me to tell my story, we met up, like we were friends, like just before that last jail sentence, actually, like we were like hanging out all the time. He was a crim. He wasn't a bikey, but we just used to kick around together and have a lot of fun together. He was a, not a bad person. Um, but yeah, him and my dad were also in jail together. Um, and yeah, so basically I met up with him and he was like, hey, bro, I'm telling my story. Do you want to tell yours? And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know. Not, I'm not really ready for that yet. There's a lot of stigma around guys from jail telling their stories because there's that aspect of being a dog. Um, but yeah, these guys who harm children uh, are the worst scumbags known to anyone on earth, I believe. But when you're in that lifestyle, mm-hmm. like telling on somebody's really hard. I told dad um, around that time or, and I think dad might not have even been out of jail when I started to tell my story or he might have been just got out. Um, so, yeah, um, dad was pretty upset um, and, he, you know, it was hard. It was very hard for him. Let's fast forward because the business is called Time for Justice, is it? Yeah, we're called About Time for Justice. And so this has been born from your own assault into now supporting others 
to get justice for their assaults. This seems like a quite a radical thing to create after being a criminal and a bikey and a, all of these things to now having that emotional intelligence to support others. And then not only that is you're actually getting compensation and you're actually having people charged. Uh, this is like huge. So can you tell us now from the moment you told your story, how you've ended up with this career? Yeah. So the moment I told my story, um, I got the job um, with the organization that helped me to sell my story. And then they actually um, put the idea in my head to start studying. And so I done what's called a tertiary preparation. And then I think I got to about a couple of years in, I was traveling down to some communities in New South Wales. I also helped um, survivors of a stolen generation to tell their sad stories. Um, and them, them sad stories are, are, you know, they're really sad because I not only, so how they got put into most of the institutions was they were stolen from their family, like taken away, stripped from their family. Um, so that was really sad and it was a big eye opener for me because when I went to school and stuff like that, I didn't, they didn't teach you all that sad stories and sad stuff. But yeah, so I got to help a lot of people down there and um, because of our networks in jail, I also branched out to there and I started helping a lot of guys there. But it got to a point where me and dad were given the blessing to go out and start About Time for Justice. And you can find us, um, you can Google us or on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. But yeah, what we do at About Time for Justice is um, we use the money that dad and I receive for our compensation from uh, historical institutional child abuse um, to start About Time for Justice, which supports survivors from all over Australia, inside the prison systems and out. Although our niche is in the prison systems, it doesn't, it doesn't stop us from being able to help. We've helped people who were abused in an Australian institution and, and are now living overseas. We're helping people in Tasmania, Northern Territory, um, all over Australia. I was in Darwin last year. I went to Alice Springs. I went to some very remote uh, First Nations communities, um, lots of them places. Um, yeah, unfortunately, some very sad stories happened there. Um, so it could be like a, a boys' home, girls' home, uh, foster cares, docs, any youth detention centres, any churches or church-run institutions, any uh, missions, reserves, community-based groups, uh, sporting teams, girls' guides, scouts, after-school cares. Um, it could wow. be a women's shelter, youth refuges. Um, yeah, it's uh, very, very broad, the Australian institutions. And when I say schools, you know, it could be private, public, boarding. Um, when I say church-run groups, it could be like a an after-school church-run group or a Sunday school or church or we also seen what a lot of these um, perpetrators used to do is go to communities or go to places where um, families were disadvantaged um, and like um, groom the kids and, you know, groom the parents, take them out on camping trips or put them in positions where they could, could not have been without, um, you know, that money or influence from um, the church people. And when I say foster cares, that could be group homes. It could be, you could have been fostered out to a family. Um, there's other names in different states and territories, like um, the territory has territory families. Um, I believe it's called DCJ, um, different states. Yeah, it's all all different names for the um, institutions. So if I did miss any and you did want to get in contact, just reach out to us. So we help survivors, most importantly, to build that trust up to tell their stories, um, you know, to tell that sad story we help them to take their full um, statement about what they went through so they can take you know upwards from 10 to 15 hours to go through that do you do that are you holding the space for these victims to tell their stories are you the person receiving the stories so what it looks like when somebody gets in contact with about time for justice is um, they'll call us and we'll just do like a brief sort of interview sort of question air it's not too into depth doesn't get right to depth because we know that it can be quite um, traumatizing and triggering so we just sort of get a little bit of brief details um, so yes I do do a little a little bit of that um, but when we take the full statement it's like it takes hours to do that one 
I have done them in the past when I was when I first started the business. So it's not me personally um, who does that anymore, but we have a team of interviewers that help people to tell their sad stories of men and women. Um, so, you know, some people don't feel comfortable speaking to whatever sex. But, yeah, so you can speak to, um, you know, whoever you want to speak to, whether it's, um, you know, a man or, or a woman, tell your story. And did you say that your dad was also sexually harmed in the system and what what you don't have to speak for him but he was older when he went to jail so was he in boys homes before or how did you learn about that yeah so dad um he was sexually abused at his primary school when he was a young kid um and this is an uncommon story for survivors of institutional abuse in their family so he was a young kid um sexually abused by his school teacher and my nan and pop um, are church people. They own, they own churches, which sounds really funny when you think about institutional abuse. You know, I don't believe that all church people are bad people, um, even though I think a lot of them are. Um, so they were church people. My pop was a chippy. My nan was a stay-at-home mum. My two uncles, who were not sexually abused, went to the same school. Um, one of them has a, both of them have an, um, tertiary education. One became a school teacher, one became a geologist. One of their kids, both of their kids to one of my uncles, both, uh, one's a, a doctor, one is a, um, a school teacher. And, you know, me, I went to jail. I, I was sexually abused. And that's not a, like, that's not even really an uncommon story for some people's families who have been through institutional abuse. You know, they get on drugs and alcohol and they're on just on a downward spiral for so many years, which is so sad. Yeah. Was it intentional for you and your dad to stop the cycle of generational incarceration? Like, did that feel intentional to you and him or did that just happen organically? Now that I look back on it and the work that I have done, I don't think it was intentional but I feel like if that institutional abuse did not happen, it, our family's trajectory would be a hundred percent different. Um, you know, it just it speaks to me in the sense of you know they gave the examples of my two uncles and their kids and where they are and um, you know, but I'm really happy that I've broken that. And you should be. You should be. It's like the best thing you could do for your children and their children and so forth that perpetrator was he charged did you get him no no he wasn't charged because i don't know who it was he came into my cell with no name badge on so i don't know who i don't know who it was and they can't track the time of year and who the employees were and show you them and like it feels like there could be more justice served you know? Yeah, no, they could be. And, you know, some perpetrators are charged. Um, some aren't. Um, I'll, if I, if I was put in that position where they asked me to charge the perpetrator, I probably would not just because, um, you know, how I feel about that. But if other people want to do it, I totally support, um, how they feel about doing that. It's yeah. Although I did tell my story and, you know, I did seek justice. I didn't, um, I didn't proceed a criminal, um, matter. Um, I didn't know who the perpetrator was, um, for a start. And just, I don't, I don't know if I could, could have gone through it, gone through that. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, 16 and a half years jail, um, because of somebody who told, on my father, how I feel about somebody who's a dog or a snitch or a police informant or rat, whatever you want to call that, is very hard. And for me to even tell my story um, to help. So what it looks like when you get compensation is the institution gets sued. Um, the institution that failed to protect my innocence was Queensland Corrections, I believe. Dad's was New South Wales, I think it was Education Department. So whatever institution it is that fails to protect the child's innocence, they're the ones who get sued. So that's where it was easier for me to, um, and a lot of other guys sort of 
break that stigma of being a dog, but yeah. So does that mentality still, you're still a snitch or a dog, even if it was a pedophile perpetrator that was a screw? Yeah. That, that, that's a thing. Like it's a, I, I don't believe that um, I could do it personally. And if somebody had done that now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them a dog and I wouldn't call them a snitch because them people are, you know, there's, they're the biggest scumbags. When you're in jail, when you're like, so you're in mainstream population in jail. So mainstream population in jail looks like, um, you know, where me, where I was, where my father was, like we didn't snitch on anyone. Um, we didn't dog on anyone. Um, but then like if somebody's in the boneyard, like they might've been a snitch, they might've done been a crown witness. They might've been a rat, whatever you want to call that person. Um, but then you can also be a rapist. You could be a kid fucker, which is like a kid toucher, pedophile. Um, so they're all in the boneyard. And when you refer to somebody as in the boneyard, you know, they're a piece of shit. They're a dog. Um, they're the worst <clears throat> people ever. So, you know, I think just because of how I grew up and all that, like, that's why I didn't do it. But I totally understand if people wanted to because... And I, and I wouldn't call them a dog. I definitely wouldn't call them a dog. Um, but, I mean, it's very hard for somebody to understand. It's just like right in the line of, yeah, it's yeah, really probably confusing for people listening. No, I think because we've had other ex-criminals on the show explain, as you have, there is a different rule book. There's different laws. There's different ethics there's different morals when you're a criminal. And what I'm hearing you say is regardless, a snitch is a snitch. It doesn't matter about the detail. You'd end up in the boneyard and you'd be like scum. So I'm hearing that like that's been ingrained in you from a child, but now you're actually working with getting people justice. It feels like, um, almost a contradiction in a way. And I, I know you understand that because you're mm. supporting people to get justice and to lock up pedophiles because, you know, as a mother, I'm thinking of this creep that's still out there that did what he did to you, potentially to somebody else, you know? So I understand I'm looking at through the lens of a civilian yeah. and you're looking through the lens of ex-bikey, ex-criminal, Um but it's just really hard. It's I guess it's really hard for you to navigate that when you've been you're kind of now fighting for people to get justice, and then within that is your own personal experience. Mm, exactly. Very well said. And I think that's why it's also incredible to hear from people like you that have done really bad things to other people, things that you regret, things that you're ashamed of. And then now fighting the fight to get justice for those that have been wronged. Not that you've wronged people the same way, but you're seeking justice. It's like, it's very nuanced. It's very, um, you know, it's fascinating. Yeah. I love it. I really love helping people. And I think that it would make other people that are in these systems, especially if it is incarceration systems they would feel so comfortable talking to you and your dad knowing that you were one of them like I think it's very it's a very smart business plan to have people that speak and walk amongst them like them you know yeah that's probably you know one of the biggest points we have is being able to talk to guys that have been to prison and speak that jail language. So that's why guys trust us because we've been there. Yeah. I know you need to go now. I mean, I really could talk to you for a very long time and get a lot more detail from this, but I just think it is so, so honourable and so important for someone that has been through what you have been through to come out and decide to be of service to so many others that don't have accessibility or education or um, even understanding that this exists, you know, to help support them. So 
I think what you're doing is incredible. Like what a way to turn your life around, you know, truly incredible. Yeah. Thank you. It feels so good to be able to give back. You have to go, but um, our final question for everybody on the deep is who are you when no one's watching? That's a good question. I, I'm a lot in my own head. Um, you know, I'm always just always trying to be a better person from what I used to be because I just used to be such a bad person. So yeah, there's a lot of voices in my head. <laughs> there's a lot of voices in my head that I battle. Um, but yeah, generally I like to think that, um, you know, I like to help anyone who has been through a tough time in particular people who have been to jail because I know what it's like to be in jail. I know what it's like to have no love and support. Um, yeah, I just always, we, we always want to help people that have been through, through the institutional abuse and been through the prison systems. And I'm sure that your mom is super proud. Yeah, she is. I love my mom so much. She done me so many solids growing up. Um, although it wasn't the best, the best start. Um, she's just, she's proven herself so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. You've got a lot more important things to do now with your day and lots of people to help. So I'll let you go. But thank you so much for being with us on the deep. Nah, thanks for having us, man. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.